This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso. We'll hear argument next in case 19635, Donald Trump versus Cyrus Vance. It was a momentous term for the Supreme Court, not only in the major decisions the court issued on LGBT rights, presidential powers, abortion rights, religious liberties, and DACA, but also in the dominance of Chief Justice John Roberts as the crucial vote in closely divided cases. And for the first time, the court heard arguments by telephone because of the pandemic, and the public could listen in live to hear the booming baritone of the usually silent justice. Justice Thomas? Uh, yes, uh, Ms. Ross, the, a couple of questions. The questioning from her hospital bed of the justice known as the notorious RBG and the chief who ran the show. Um, or that thank, thank you, Ms. Blatt. Uh, Justice Ginsburg? Among the many surprises, conservative Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion in the watershed decision protecting the rights of gay and transgender workers. Let's do truth serum, okay? Wouldn't, wouldn't the employer maybe say it's because this was this person was a man who liked other men and isn't that first part sex chief justice roberts sided with the liberals for the first time in a case reinforcing abortion rights and the two trump appointees voted with roberts and the liberal justices in the split decision on subpoenas for trump's financial records counsel for all that you don't argue that the grand jury cannot investigate the president, do you? Joining me is Stephen Vladek, a professor of constitutional law at the University of Texas Law School. It was an unusual term in many ways, packed with controversial cases and landmark opinions on socially divisive issues. How would you characterize the term, putting it in context with past terms? I mean, I think it's so out of context with past terms. You know, this is a court that heard the fewest argued cases, at least partly because of the coronavirus pandemic since the Civil War. It's a court that handed down an unusually large number of really significant decisions, given how few overall cases it heard. It's a court that went further into July than the court has since, you know, 1974. So I think what's really remarkable about this term is how remarkable it was top to bottom. You had one justice, the chief justice, with a larger role than we've seen any single justice have in a term in a long time. And you had a whole bunch of major, major decisions that I think are going to be pretty significant, not only in their own rights, June, but in what they open the door to for further litigation down the road. So really a term that's remarkable in every way that it's not like previous terms. Let's begin with how the Trump administration fared. Trump is the first president since Franklin Delano Roosevelt, whose administration lost more cases than it won in a term. Well, I think, you know, first, I think we have to separate Trump, the personal litigant, from the Trump administration. Because obviously, I think from the president's perspective, two of the biggest decisions weren't about Trump policies, but rather about his own personal financial records. And I suspect he chalked both of those up as losses. But the broader narrative that the administration had a bad term, I think is a little bit too superficial, June. That's a narrative that focuses on the 50-some-odd decisions in argued cases. And I'm a big believer that we also have to look at what the court's doing in its order docket. There were a number of really important orders, especially early in the term, that cleared the way for some pretty controversial Trump policies to go into effect. You know, his repurposing of military construction funds to build the border wall the public charge rule in asylum cases, 
these are really big wins that I think aren't getting counted because they didn't come in the flood of big published decisions in June and July. So, you know, I think that from a policy level, it's probably a bit of a mixed bag for the Trump administration this term, losing some really big cases, winning some equally important but perhaps less visible cases. But for President Trump himself, you know, obviously the rulings in the Vance and Mazar's cases probably put a bit of a damper on what few victories he won elsewhere. Would you say that those rulings in the cases over subpoenas for President Trump's financial records, would you call those landmark opinions on presidential powers? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think they're going to be landmark opinions, June, at least down the road, especially, I think, the Mazar's ruling regarding congressional subpoenas. I mean, it's not that common to have local prosecutors subpoenaing a president's financial records. And so Vance may end up being an outlier. But insofar as the court in Vance rejected the president's absolute immunity claims, and insofar as the court in Mazar's not only made it clear that some congressional subpoenas of the president's records will be upheld, but that it's going to be the courts who are going to be the policemen, who are going to be the intermediaries. I think that's a landmark decision structurally, because it really does provide a blueprint for this and future Congresses if they really want to put teeth into their subpoenas, if they really want to try to assert themselves at the expense of the executive branch, now they have a referee in ways that I think it wasn't necessarily clear at various points earlier in this year that that would happen. So Trump may not lose these cases immediately insofar as we may not see any of the relevant records before the election. But I do think that in the long term, the presidency lost both of those cases And in the Mazar's case especially, even though Congress, I think, loses in the short term, Congress wins unquestionably, in my view, in the long term. Coming up next on Bloomberg Law, we'll continue our look at this blockbuster term with a focus on Chief Justice John Roberts, the key vote in the closely divided cases, a role no other Chief Justice has played since the 1930s. Did the Chief steer the court to the middle? Chief Justice John Roberts famously compared justices to umpires at his confirmation hearings. Judges and justices are servants of the law, not the other way around. Judges are like umpires. Umpires don't make the rules, they apply them. The role of an umpire and a judge is critical. They make sure everybody plays by the rules, but it is a limited role. But that was 15 years ago. Has Roberts' viewpoint changed as his role on the court has changed? Roberts was the deciding vote in nearly every close case this term, many involving controversial social issues, and the author of landmark opinions that will become required reading for law students. My guest is Stephen Vladek, a professor of constitutional law at the University of Texas Law School. Steve, there's no doubt about one thing this term, and that's that Chief Justice John Roberts has dominated the term. And so the comparisons with Chief Justice John Marshall have started. How do you see the chief? I don't even know if the comparisons to John Marshall are fair to Chief Justice Roberts, because Marshall never had a term like this where he was dealing with conflicting majorities and all the political pressures. June, we've never seen a term like this from any justice, let alone a chief justice. You know, not only is he responsible for writing arguably eight of the nine most important opinions the court handed down this term. As you say, he's in the majority in all but two cases. In every 5-4 case except for one, he's in the majority. And so, you know, it's really a telling sign of where the court is that John Roberts, who is by no means, you know, I think a centrist, but is clearly on all but the most random issues, 
the median vote between the very, very solid conservative for justice block and the solid for justice progressive block. And I don't know if that's necessarily what John Roberts would like, but at least allows him to put his stamp on what the court's doing. And so I think the decisions we saw this term were very much consistent with what I've always viewed as his vision of the court, that it's a court that is going to be very conservative in the institutional sense, but also very assertive when necessary, that ultimately it is for the court to be the authoritative expositor of the Constitution. And even if that means moving slowly, and even if that means handing down decisions that don't go as far as, say, you know, those who align with him politically would like him to, it leads in that direction eventually. So, you know, I can't think of, a, of another term in any recent memory in which a single justice had this kind of impact. Certainly, we never saw that from Justice Kennedy, even, when he was at the height of being the swing justice. It's just, it's a remarkable amount of power, and I think it's a remarkable amount of control. And, you know, from his perspective, I suspect, even if he doesn't like the spotlight, it means a lot of opinions that ended up where he wanted them to be. Looking at some of the five to four cases, the chief voted with the liberals in the abortion case and the DACA case, but voted with the conservatives in the school vouchers case and the Obamacare contraceptive mandate case. So going forward, is there any way to tell how the chief will cast his vote? Well, for one, I think no one should come away from this term thinking that Roberts has somehow moved radically to the left. I and mean, I think that was a headline in a couple of news stories that I just don't understand. I think the reality, June, is that the court has moved very far to the right in a fairly short period of time, ever since Justice Alito replaced Justice O'Connor, you know, Justice Kavanaugh replaced Justice Kennedy. And so I think it's much more a sign, June, that the four conservative justices have gone even further to the right as cases that show up further to the right on the ideological spectrum have come to the court. And the chief towing the line looks like it has this leftward effect when it really doesn't. So what does that mean for how we predict where the chief justice is going to be? I think it's pretty straightforward that in a case that does not look like it's an institutional assault on the judiciary, he's going to be his old self. You know, he's going to be conservative. He's going to be very skeptical of the kinds of arguments that tend to be in favor with progressive constitutionalists. He's going to be fairly committed to textualism, to originalism, etc. But you're going to have cases that really do look like they're an assault on the court, either because it's a frontal assault on a precedent which I think was the Louisiana abortion case, or because you have the executive branch or the federal government as a whole basically asking the courts to just close their eyes to the facts in front of them. I think that's the DACA case. And I think the chief is going to, he has shown before, he showed again this term, and I think he will show again, that he is not someone who's going to be able to sort of look past cases where the relevant actors seem to be acting in bad faith. And I don't know that that makes him consistently predictable, but it's a very different kind of centrism and a very different kind of median voter than Anthony Kennedy was. There were 13 5 to 4 or 5 to 3 decisions, which is a drop from the last two years. And there were several major decisions with 7 to 2 votes. Do you think this is a blow for the independence of the judiciary or is that going too far? You know, it's such a small data set, June, and 13 is a lower absolute number. But again, this is a court that only handed down 53 signed opinions for the whole term. So that's still a quarter of what the court did. I think the reality is that this is a court that is increasingly unafraid of its shadow. And that's especially true with John Roberts as the median vote, you know, as opposed to years past where both were wary about Justice Kennedy and might have not wanted to take cases up because they weren't sure where he would end up. I think now they all have a pretty good sense of where they are. 
And so that means that there are going to be cases they take where it's clear from the outset that it's going to be five to four. So I think we're probably looking at actually a higher overall percentage of five to four decisions in the long term. And I think the real question is not you know the absolute number of five four decisions, but sort of how many of them as a percentage of the court's workload, which you know as you know once again is down this year. And so that's the other trend line here is that the court is deciding fewer and fewer cases every year. And against that backdrop, each individual decision is going to loom that much larger. What's your take on the newest justices, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh? Justice Gorsuch did surprise some people, writing the majority opinion in the LGBT case and the tribal treaty case. I think they're very much who we expected. At least I always expected there would be a couple of idiosyncratic areas where Justice Gorsuch, you know, where his principles seemed at least superficially inconsistent with his politics. Of course, that was always true of Justice Scalia, his predecessor. And it's not shocking to me that either of the big candidates from this year were examples of that, right? That Title VII case was a perfect case for his formalistic textualism. And the Oklahoma case, I think, was very much a context in which if any justice on the right was going to be sympathetic, it would be him. I don't think it suggests anything larger about Gorsuch being some kind of unreliable conservative. I think in every other context with a partisan valence, he was reliably on the right. I was much more surprised in the Title VII case by the Chief Justice joining Gorsuch's majority opinion than by the fact that Gorsuch wrote it. As for Justice Kavanaugh, I mean, I think Justice Kavanaugh is doing what most folks expected. He's a pretty reliable vote for whatever is perceived as a conservative position in these cases. And the only example, really, of him bucking that, you know, in his first, really, two terms on the court was an antitrust case from last term. Steve, much has been written about many conservatives being unhappy with the term and seizing on the perhaps unexpected decisions in cases involving abortion rights, LGBT rights, DACA recipients. Was it a winning term for liberals? I think it's a little bit too simplistic to look at the term in those labels. If there's a headline there, it's that it wasn't quite the blowout for the conservatives that many expected. But even the big cases that the court sort of sided with the progressives in, the wins were pretty modest. You know, the Title VII case is statutory interpretation. The DACA case is statutory interpretation and leaves the administration free to come back and do it all over again. The Louisiana abortion case, even though the court struck down the Louisiana statute, the chief justice's controlling concurrence is actually a pretty friendly opinion for states looking for new ways to restrict access to abortion. Whereas the wins for the conservatives, I think, were huge wins. We're on the precipice of a major revolution in how the court handles religious liberty. And I think we saw the beginnings of that in the Espinoza religious school case, in the ministerial exception case, in the contraceptive mandate case. You know, the court has an enormous case on the docket for next term, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, about whether it should revisit the canonical decision in its religious liberty jurisprudence. So, you know, I think... If we're just talking up wins and losses, yeah, it was probably a bit of a mixed verdict. And I think it wasn't the clean sweep that a lot of conservatives were expecting, given the competition of the court. I guess I would just say there are two caveats. One, that may be at least in part a reflection of just how extreme some of these cases were. And two, I think the wins, such as they were for the progressives, are going to prove pretty modest in the long term. Whereas the wins for the conservatives, including in cases that have gotten less attention, like the expedited removal case, are going to be pretty significant and going to form the basis for much bigger, broader shifts in the law on the ground in the coming years and decades. So tell us more about the lineups of votes in the future. You know, I think the 
the battle lines are drawn pretty clearly for the court in the next five, 10 years, where there's only going to be a handful of cases where anyone is speculating about who the critical votes are. And where in the high profile cases, it's pretty clearly going to be either one of those narrow slices of cases where it's possible to discourage, or I think the norm, the standard, and what was true this term, is it's going to be the chief. COVID-19 loomed large this year at the court in many different ways, especially for the general public, because they got to hear the justices asking questions as it happened. How do you think it played a role in what happened at the court? Well, I think it certainly slowed the court down. I mean, I think the obvious reason why the court, you know, was still handing down marriage decisions after July 4th is because of the two arguments in May. As you know, I was actually supposed to argue the very first case that was delayed by the coronavirus. That's now going to be arguing in the fall, so I think it's also going to have an effect on the court's docket both this term and next term, where it's going to have a smaller number of overall cases. There are a couple of sort of smaller effects, June, where you know they're used to seeing each other in person. And like all of us, right, they're pride of the opportunity to converse in person, to have the sort of the group dynamics that come from sitting around a table discussing these cases. I'm sure that it's had marginal effects in how the work of the court has been done. And then, of course, there's been the COVID-specific cases. We already saw the really important decision in April in the Wisconsin election case. We saw the Chief Justice casting the deciding vote in the California religious services case. I have to think that we're in for more of those over the summer and in the fall, especially as the elections in November approach. Let's talk about the Supreme Court's so-called shadow docket. How important was it this term? We pay attention for obvious reasons to the big, high-profile cases that the court handles, what you might say, in a plenary way, where they have briefing and argument and where we get these opinions handed down in May, June, and July. This term, I think, was equally important in many respects, June, for all of the stuff the court did, not through those kinds of merits cases, but all of the one-sentence orders, granting stay applications to the federal government, denying applications to other parties. And I think this term, as much as any recent one, we saw a volume of those rulings in a way that really had an impact. Everything from freeing up the president to build his border wall, even though no court has ever actually said it's legal for him to use military construction funds the way he's using it, to the Wisconsin election case, to the 2 a.m. ruling on July 14th about the federal death penalty. These are contexts where the court is often doing just as much work, June, and having just as much of an impact on the ground. But they don't get the same attention because the rulings are usually cryptic. They usually come out of nowhere. You know, they're not sort of handed down with a big pomp and circumstance. And I think this term, as much as any recent term, we've seen the impact of those orders and how they really are as much an important part of what the court is doing. Part of why that matters is because if you account for those orders as well as the decisions in the argued cases, I think it looks much more like an, an even better term for conservatives and an even more remarkable term for the chief justice. Thanks, Steve. That's Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg.